Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Liverpool. I'm Carlos from Liverpool. This is Martha Wayne. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> Chunky Move have got a new show coming up called Lucid on from the 26th of May to the 12th of June. Uh, conceived, directed, and choreographed by Anouk Van Dyke from Chunky Move, who joins us in the studio now. Anouk, good morning. Good morning. And uh, we also have uh, Executive Director of Chunky Move, Vanessa Pygram, with us in the Hello. studio as well. some special secret guest. Yes. Mm. Now, you've been moving around a little bit. Last time you were in, uh, a couple of years ago, you were talking about what you were doing out at Darabin. So. Oh, yeah, I was. So, yeah, I think that was the last time I was in here with yeah. you, Richard. Changed, changed hats, changed tracks. That's right, changed... Costumes, you know, new show. No, it's good to. It was it was a really great move for me to go from that sort of local government experience into back into the coal face of of, 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 of art, art making. making. Yeah, and one of the nation's premier contemporary dance companies. So, Anouk, tell us about Lucid, the new work. Which uh, I mean, the last chunky move piece I saw, I think, was outdoors, dust and and the city uh, at, at dusk. Uh, but now you're moving into and taking the audience into the Chunky Move studios for this work. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, my last couple of works I've made have been predominantly site-specific or on large-scale main stage works like Complexive Belonging for the Melbourne Festival at the Sumner with collaboration with the MTC and then uh, Depths of Field last year for Dance Massive which was the site specific outdoor one and a few more of those outdoor adventures that I've done the last couple of years um, and in all my shows I really look into how um, basically everything around us affects us how we are and also affects our physical makeup and in that dance comes really into play so for each work I kind of choose like something like um, my protagonist to bounce off from and you know last year it was a big dusty outdoor site and this year we go indoors into our own intimate studio theatre and the screen and our own reflection on the screen is sort of the one I'm bouncing off of this time around now, one of the things that the work is exploring, I understand, is that, that notion of, I guess, interrogating ourselves, uh, interior monologues, the, what we present to the world versus how we see ourselves. Talk to us thematically about what you wanted to explore in this work. Well, I've started... Well, first of all, I'm working on this show with a dancer and an actor, uh, Lauren Langlois, a dancer who's worked with Chunky Moo for a couple of years now, and Stephen Phillips, who I met... As being, he was part of the cast of Complexity Belonging that I created two years ago with Falk Richter. And he, he's a great actor, um, pr- predominantly uh, on screen and um, uh, main stage uh, theatre work. And he has an incredible love for movement and physicality. And he started as a woodchopper as a kid. And out of that grew into a bass player. And then out of that became Shakespeare actor and things like that. So he has a very eclectic background. Um, so I wanted to work with two performers who have a very physical presence and identify imagery very much in the way how they make art um, and through actually their own heroes and icons through forming uh, a work where they reflect on their own identity, actually. Vanessa, what's it like to watch the work being developed? Because I'm sure, kind of, given that you're at the company, you can stick your head into the studio. Well, that's right. Oh, there's some really interesting um, noises and laughter coming out of the room, actually. No, it's a, it's a really spectacular um, environment that Anouk has made in the studio. So it's totally transformed, you know, what is normally <clears throat> a, uh, an, a, you know, an open, brightly lit um, dance studio into this 
very sort of cavernous interior world with this beautiful uh, representation of projections and faces and it's a you know constantly moving i guess dialogue between the the three-dimensional physical presence of the performers and the two-dimensional um, projected work um, in the in the space I don't want to give too much away about that about that look but it is really it really plays with your um, perspective with what you're focusing on with the the kind of tension between what is the whole picture and what is the really really tiny tiny sort of micro look at an extreme close up of a moment and it, because everything is live we film everything mm. live so there's no or maybe no <laughs> recorded footage in it what kind of challenges does presenting a work in the studio present because it means that you don't have the full lighting rig and the full sound system and so on that you would have uh, on stage at a major theater for example oh well actually we bring in everything and we have a great sitting bank with really nice chairs so you feel you are just in a theater and our small studio transformed to a great foyer designed each year by one of you know the staff members who always makes a real good good work in creating this real theater experience and it's also very important for us to bring our own audience into our building so they don't only experience the work of chunky move but they almost experience like the heart of where these things are created so it it's i think it's one of the best black box theaters in the city at the moment that we have so no it's a good experience for the audience to go there and in terms of working with a dancer and an actor uh, both obviously uh performers used to to physicality and to to uh, embodying work within themselves and then expressing that but nonetheless working across art forms to a degree is that an exciting challenge or is it a difficult challenge to to because i would imagine they would have quite different styles of communicating ideas yeah yeah, well, you know, that's the fun part and that's the puzzle, you know. It's, it's, and we are all aware of it because we've worked together before. So we know, um, uh, you know, I've worked with Steve and Lauren on another show. So, so we've gone through the experience of how do you communicate with each other. But each new show has a new challenge. So for each new show, you have to find a different way of performing. Whereas last year, they had, the dancers had to figure out how to work on a dusty, slippery surface and run miles and miles and miles. Actually, we go the other way around this in this show. There's so many marks on the floor for all the camera angles that they have miniature choreography of head movements and shoulder movements and feet movements to be able to get the maximized effect on the screen. Screens. So they know that that's actually the landscape we work in. So they they go to minuscule way of working. Although as an audience, you can experience it as a big blast, you know. And then of course we showed a little bit the making of it, so you see a little bit the illusion and and what's actually at stake. I'm really looking forward to seeing it because that notion of being able to watch the dancers do a, a, a grand gesture or, or, or a dramatic movement and then for the cameras to pick up the small gesture of a, of a twisted wrist or a slightly positioned foot or something will be... It'll be fascinating to watch that happening live, yeah. kind of the macro and the micro. In the macro and the micro. That's it's been right. really fascinating. Um, in the early development, with Steve was talking about the, the training that he's gone through as an actor for screen and just that... The, the, the minuscule, as you say, the tiny, tiny movements that will happen that you need to do on screen to make an enormous difference. So, you know, as an actor on screen, you're always being told to do less, less, less. It's much more internalised and it's the micro-expressions that are important. So to kind of bring that language and that training into a choreographic world has been... I think that's a really fascinating dialogue that, that's being explored. 
Now, speaking of macro and micro, uh, from the micro of chunky move making and you work lucid, let's step back a moment and, and go macro and look at the big picture. Mm. Uh, as everybody in the art sector is aware, and I'm sure many of the listeners, if they were listening to the start of the show or to me on Breakfasters on Monday, the art sector has really undergo- undergone trauma over the last week with companies being defunded. So we've seen the likes of Legs on the Wall, for example, and Force Majeure, significant dance and physical theatre companies losing their funding. Mm. Chunky Move has successfully uh, retained retained, uh, Australia Council funding and it has also picked up some catalyst funding for touring. But what's the impact on the company? Does this mean that dancers from elsewhere in the sector are going to come knocking on the door hoping for more opportunities with you? Well, yeah, I mean, the the, sort of reeling back to the word trauma, it has been an exceptionally brutal um, experience, I think, for, for everyone, even those of us who got a good phone call on that day. You know, the the experience of actually receiving that phone call and then um, talking to your peers and fi- trying to find out, you know, who had got through and who hadn't, it was, you know, a very... Uh, it, Extraordinary experience, really. It did feel like coming through some sort of bizarre natural disaster where you were just concerned about survival um, and no-one was really, in my experience, no-one was prepared to celebrate that they had got that funding. Um, I mean, now being sort of a week or so down the track, it's been interesting to look at the larger picture to see that there are, in fact, some incredible organisations who have been funded for the first time. And I think in a generational way... It's it's really healthy and it's really a, a great thing that new companies can come in to the, the sort of funding cycle. Um, but we all know that this, these are very um, restricted circumstances for the Australia Council to deal with. Um, this is really the outcome of what happened a year ago with the federal budget in 2015 and the George Brandis um, decision. And really I think we are just, as a sector, reeling from the impact of those of those decisions. What that means for Chunky specifically is um, we don't really know yet. We do feel a heightened sense of responsibility, I think, for uh, being one of the larger organisations um, in Melbourne in the dance sector. We already do a lot of sector development, of uh, you know choreographic development, um, all of those things that we we do normally. I think they will just be intensified in a way and and. We will find out over the next six months or so you yeah. know, what, what it means in real terms for I mean, the company. For, and for companies like uh, Philip Adams Ballet Lab, who've yeah. lost funding, Cage, uh, another Melbourne company who've lost funding, um, it's obviously there is an enormous amount of shock and anger, um, but there will then also be the flip side of that. The, uh, what, one of the things that the arts do well is adapt and, uh, and evolve and, uh, and we all know that everybody in the art sector is really good at mm. doing, taking an oily rag, waving it around, using that smell to make <laughs> great work. So I'm sure that those companies will continue to make great work and they may come knocking on your door occasionally and say, can we borrow your rehearsal space perhaps? Oh, but- absolutely. And, you know, we will do whatever we can to, to you know, keep the sector and keep... keep you know, companies and individual artists, you know, supported in whatever way we can in around, you know, the activities that we are already committed to, um, to delivering as well. I'm oh, sorry, just the, the oil of a, the, the smell of an oily rag always makes me think that we're kind of a, a sector of petrol sniffers in a way. It's like, 
yep, get a whiff of that and we'll keep going. going. Yeah. Uh, but we are incredibly adaptable. Um, but there will be many, many lost opportunities for really great people. Um, and Anouk, to look at the company now and in the future, uh, once the, the the season of Lucid has run, which is from the 26th of May until the 12th of June, what next for, for Chunky Move? Are you uh, on the road again, touring again, uh, or focused on the, the creation of uh, new work? What's the process next? Um, actually, we are um, preparing a lot of touring, um, uh, but it's kind of a, a puzzle um, um, geographically how to fit in all the demands that we had recently which is really amazing but also it's challenging mm. how can we get the set from Asia to Europe in a very short amount of time and like juggles like that um, so that's what's happening at the moment and then um, next thing that will be in development is our next move program of uh, this year we've commissioned uh, two artists to make a work for the company, or actually three. So there's a couple, uh, Joe Lloyd and Nicola Gunn, will make a work for us. And Melanie Lane will make a work where she's actually collaborating with an ex-ballerina from the Australian Ballet. So we have a really exciting program coming up um, afterwards in September. I look forward to seeing those works and I very much look forward to seeing uh, Lucid when I head along to the Chunky Move studios to see that. That's the, the latest work from Chunky Move running from the 26th of May until the 12th of June at the Chunky Move studios which are located at 111 Sturt Street, South Bank. You can find out more information about the work and about the company at chunkymove.com.au but Lucid, as I said, running from the 26th of May to the 12th of June and uh, tickets through chunkymove.com.au Thank you both for joining us in the studio today and uh, as I said really looking forward to seeing the new production so cheers Cheers Thank you Hi I'm Patty Smith This is Bert Newton Hey this is Karen Oh I'm Sam from Interpol I'm Carlos from Interpol This is Martha Wainwright Alex from the Orb And you're listening to a Triple R archive on (laughs) rrr.org.au It's time for us to talk about straight white men. Not something that I necessarily talk a lot about on this particular program. Um, Straight White Men is the name of a play that's currently on at Art Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax studio. It's a Melbourne Theatre Company production. Joining us in the studio, uh, we have Hamish Michael, who is acting in the show. How are you going? Good morning. I'm very well. And uh, Candy Bowers, who is a DJ and stagehand in charge. Is that the title? <laughs> yes. That's an unusual title. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting work. On the first page of the script, uh, young Jean Lee, the writer, specifies that the curtain speech and all of the transitions are highly important, that the show must look like it's not in control... Uh, it's in control of people who are not straight white men. So I kind of embody a couple of things, um, a, a, a not straight white man, and and also an authority in the space, which is really interesting because I think... In Australia, when we think of, like, stagehands or ASMs, we think of them kind of lower on the rung. But from an American perspective, I'm in charge of the stage. So I get to welcome everybody in there in my fine styles. Uh, She also asks that loud um, hip-hop music be played with uh, lyrics, explicit lyrics by female rappers, which is also very much my word, my world. (laughs) And um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of fun to bring that energy into a space like the Fairfax Studio. Uh, in a main stage production for MTC. Now, although the play is called Straight White Men, it's not really so much about straight white men as an exploration of priv- of privilege. Is that right? It's yeah, it's kind of deceptive in that sense. It's kind of using 
the three-act structure as an exercise in a way. You, you know, you're presenting the things that we're very used to seeing on stage, but using that in a kind of very mischievous way to present this story that plants a seed and hopefully, if you, you know, are paying attention to everything, you can walk away from that and over the course of the next couple of weeks really kind of start thinking about a few things that are maybe a lot more challenging than you might walk away from a usual main stage production with. Such as? Well, like questioning your own white privilege as a kind of, you know, white middle class. That's generally the, the audience of the people that go to see shows like that. You know, subscriber bases are only kind of really getting older and whiter. So hopefully we can change that or at least challenge uh, that, um, what those people generally kind of think when they go and see a show like this. Like it's not like we're going to see the next David Williamson production. It's kind of using that against itself. Mm. Now, I'm not that familiar with young Jean Lee's work, oh. but what I do know about her is that uh, to, to write a three-act play is really not her usual style at all. She's a lot more experimental than that, a lot more yeah. exploratory in terms of theatrical language. Why do you think she chose to use this particular structure? Um, I think this work is, is absolutely extraordinary, and what she's doing is uh, exploring her own kind of... Um, her own internalised kind of sexism and racism in a way and the white patriarchy through using linear patriarchal form of theatre making. So also because our audiences in this particular sphere are used to seeing that three-act play with that catharsis, with all of those things that we believe makes a good work, um, she does some really feminist things with it. And she, uh, which has been a little bit missed by some of the criticism, she actually creates a space where people f- start feeling very irritated because she play- she's using the form and then she um, basically relinquishes it before the end. And we are not used to that. And even physically people are like, oh, that's annoying. <laughs> and uh, that's the point of the work. So she's actually... This is another one of her experimental theatre works, actually, by using the naturalism, by making a set that looks very much like something people would usually see as they walked into the space, by having four straight white men as the centre of her story. But then there are all these little winks and cues for the audience to go, maybe this isn't what I think it is. Um, And what's exciting at a certain level is some people don't see those winks or cues at all. And walk away going, oh, that was a really... It's an odd comedy that just yeah. kind of stopped working for me at some yeah. point. Yeah, and, and also, well, brothers and men. And what she's done really well is really gotten in... Because I was reading it thinking, I don't think I could write another straight white man until I do my research, yeah. you know, as a black woman. I'm like, I didn't know it, this is the stuff you got. Like, oh, wow, that's really straight and, <laughs> and white. And I was like, wow, she did. she's done very well in observing her subject because she is quite a genius. Like, I mean, she studied theatre, she has a master's in Shakespeare, she's, you know, been a critic, so she understands theatre very well. Yeah, the tools and the playground that she's yeah. in is kind of, you know, very well observed. Um, to use the, to, uh, I guess, riff off that idea of tools, um, <laughs> th- let's talk about the, the, the four white men uh, that the, uh, the, the, the play is looking at. <laughs> tools that we are, yeah. <laughs> uh, sure thing. Um, John Gayden, Australia's <laughs> John Gayden, uh, is uh, playing our patriarch, Ed. So it's three brothers that go home to their father's house in Midwest America uh, for Christmas. So already that's set up, you know, the, the powder keg of times where emotions uh, can maybe flare up. <laughs> One of the brothers has moved back to the house uh, a little bit earlier. Um, 
And, you know, it's kind of that we-need-to-talk-about-Matt kind of scenario. Like, we yeah. don't really know what's going on with Matt. He's the eldest brother. He's living with Dad. He seems kind of content, but at the same time, there's something going on. We don't... That's kind of the crux of the play, really. So, myself, uh, I'm the youngest brother, Drew, and uh, there's Luke Ryan, who plays Jake, who's the middle brother, and it's just um, an exploration of those three days over Christmas and like, how everybody deals with the situation. And I like the fact that it, it's a... Uh, and it's a it's a cliched setup mm-hmm. from the word go, yeah. and the the three act drama is is something of a of a cliche as well. And so young Jean Lee is then using all of these familiar tropes and motifs and structures to really start to dismantle kind of what's underlying them. That's right. I mean, that's the stunning part because I now, you know, I'm I'm live on the show the whole time. I sit above the the action. I'm watching the entire thing unfold nightly. And more and more, um, you know, I get all these little nuances and subtleties and it's a very subtle show. I mean, her theatre company byline is destroyed the audience and recently one of my students who I'm about to go and teach playwriting to again at the Union House Theatre at Melbourne Uni, he wrote a review and he said, um, like, it's destruction in slow motion. So you think you're coming in, and I think from some of the writing that was around and even the Saturday paper interview of young Jean Lee, you think you're going to come in and get hit in the guts. You know, you're white, blah, 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 but it's not like that at all. It's actually um, really slow and subtle, and I think it creates this visceral experience that some people just go, no, nah, no. Like we at our, at our forum, one man said, I don't think it's about race, I think it's about class. And we're like, um, it's, it's about race. And it was like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, there was no way in. You know what I mean? And for, for another crew, um, Hamish was in a, in a um, lift coming out with some older white folks and they said, oh, we didn't think that black woman had any authority. We assumed she was the maid. Now, that assumption is a context of the audience. <laughs> and at the minute you begin to question your own privilege or what you see on main stages... And I was saying, particularly for me, as so, you know, I don't really get to see black women on stages. I was saying there's even an opera, you know, based in Sri Lanka in the building currently and there's only one woman of colour in it. So for me as well, it's almost a... It's a really fun space to kind of go, are these people going to allow me this authority or how do I just take it? Young Jean Lee has told me I've got it, but does it mean that anybody's going to go with this if they're just so wired to not seeing that? And I think this whole play is about that. So the feeling, thinking, critical thinkers of the group see a completely different work. It strikes me as a really intriguing play for the MTC to program because it's it's given that they clearly know who their core subscriber base are and what the demographics are. It's like they've programmed this to, as not as a slap in the face to those subscribers, but uh, to what to uh, to contrast, to undercut, to, to yeah. co- almost comment on their own subscribers. It's by programming it, it's become meta theatrical even more. It kind of Correct. is in that way, and it's it's almost an exercise in in having your cake and eating it too. Like you kind of get to have both in a way, and even in the way that it's being advertised as like the I think the tagline is it's a cracker of a Christmas comedy, and <laughs> you got. Like, like these white guys, kind of, you know, one looking maudlin and one looking kind of really happy and they've just kind of pulled a Christmas cracker and it looks like a pretty daggy white show. I remember someone tweeted that I had seen the other day. It's like, you know, MTC's got a show on called Straight White Men Soon and it's going to be beige as fuck. Mm. And it's like, you know, well, that's going to be the perception of it. But if you bother to kind of like pull the layers apart and have a look, then 
it's very rare, I think, that you would get this kind of thing programmed on the main stage as... I think at its heart, it, it is really an identity politics, politics play that's masquerading as a comedy. So, you know, people just get... It, it opens kind of so... In such a kind of burst of comedy and, and, like, brothers just kind of fighting each other that you feel really at home and you feel kind of like, oh, this is a lot of fun. It's like watching Roseanne mm. and then stuff starts to happen. It so. slowly pulls the rug out. Yeah, it's a really slow release yeah, kind of thing. I, that's what John Gaydon said. It's, an, it's undermining, you know. But also for me, I'm like, it's kind of a delight and that's why I want so many intersectional feminists to come along because I'm like, you know, for the first time we see white guys tussling with their shit. You know, moving from the default setting of like, oh, I'm just a human. We're all human beings to being politicised. And for me, I was like, I started this journey when I was seven years old. You know, and, and so it's really actually fun to to think of young Jean Lee, you know, her ability, her genius of even getting into pro- these programs and then asking this stuff. And I found, like, working in the room, all of the white folks have had an incredible, like, consciousness-raising experience because I've, you know, when I've played those roles, I've had conscious-raising experiences and now it's, like, the first time for a lot of them to have that experience and I think that's exciting as well. Um so f- for me, for the audience, it's like it's it's. I think a lot of people come in. I noticed a lot of reviewers came with with lots of thoughts that that this was going to be a certain way, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure the myriad of reasons why for that. Like they've read an article. Young Jin Lee says she's it's a razor sharp thing. They come in and go. I don't think it's razor sharp at all. Mm. But it's the thing of going. Well, I would suggest you come way more open. And that you are also going to question all of your terms of reference and what you think is hard hitting and what you think is like theatre that changes you and definitely what you think political theatre is. I think this work is going to, it challenges all of that stuff. Yeah. And this is the first time that she's actually written a play like this, you know, so it's kind of a continuation of the way that she makes theatre. This is just another stage in you know, her creation. Yeah, she's, she's, and she's adapted her her way of storytelling to a, a more accessible form. Yeah. But she's... Um, I wonder whether some audiences are, are thinking, oh, we've been kind of... We've been swindled, <laughs> kind of false pretenses. We, we thought we were going to get play X and we've got play plays kind of Y. But also it would seem from what you've been saying, what you've both been saying and what some of the reviewers have said, is that they haven't got it they're, yeah. they're kind of they've they've been unaware of what's really happening underneath the surface yeah i mean you kind of get both but i think you're invited in to look at why a little more um and i think that some people just take x and go oh x kind of stopped working for me about half an hour before the play finished and uh, that's the moment where you, i think you're kind of invited Revelation. to go start start thinking about that but. and i think it's also because if you haven't like our director sarah she often says like she hadn't done a lot of questioning of her whiteness when she picked the play up so she had to read it three times before she got it so i think that's the other thing if you haven't like had the opportunity to explore or even heard the concept of white privilege or white fragility or what whiteness means then i think it is it is quite hard to decipher because you're like what do you mean that's a thing like john said when he first came into the room we were talking about tropes and i was like you know these are white guy tropes you know like that book what white people like and we you know man fever man flu straight tropes white tropes and john was like i've never heard i'm a oh my goodness i'm a white male trope and i was like you sure are you know like 
There's, yeah, so this is the fun of it too, kind of going, actually, we've all, we're all things. Um, we just kind of get to now unpack it more, you know? The production is Straight White Men, presented by the MTC. It's on at Art Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax studio on now until the 18th of June. You can book by calling the MTC box office 86880800 or calling Art Centre Melbourne 1300 182183 or so many choices. Uh, you can book online at mtc.com.au or artcentremelbourne.com.au. We've been chatting with Candy Bowers and Hamish Michael about the play Straight White Men. Sounds great. Thanks yeah. to both of you for coming. Can I just add quickly student rush tickets and under 30s tickets because I want to put it out there that my people probably can't afford the main tickets. Yeah. So just so you know, there are other options and I'm pretty sure student rush in that last 20 or whatever you don't need a student concession or something you just go for it because i'd love some of those seats to be filled with real critical thinking poor folks like myself yeah Yeah. cool hopefully they can get along thank you both thanks richard thanks richard hi i'm patty smith this is bert newton hey this is karen oh i'm sam from interpol i'm carlos from interpol this is martha wainwright alex from the orb and you're listening to a triple r archive on (laughs) rrr.org.au My next guest uh, has joined me in the studio. Uh, actor Pamela Rabe is uh, appearing in The Glass Menagerie at the Malthouse Theatre. It's uh, a Belvoir production that has come to Melbourne after much acclaim uh, in Sydney, including winning the 2015 Helpman Award for Best Play. It's directed by Eamon Flack. Uh, it is, of course, uh, a Tennessee Williams play. It's the memory play that I believe made him famous. Pamela, what does the play mean for you and why did you agree to appear in this production? Now, Richard, you just told me all your listeners have been bombarded with talking heads or talking, you know, voices for the last hour or so. So I think we should just sit in silence, don't you? Wouldn't that be the great... It'd be fascinating live radio, ten minutes. We we could create a a performance art piece sitting here staring. Post-technology, the sounds of silence. Won't make for the most fascinating interview, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm... Um, You want me to talk about what glass menagerie means to me? Yeah. Quietly? Um, It's a beautiful play. And um, I think Tennessee Williams has been part of my kind of cultural landscape most of my life. And uh, to have the privilege of actually working on something that is one of the great pieces of um, writing, not just American writing, but um, of, of... of performance writing of the 20th century is a great honour. And uh, I think the uh, the notion of stepping on a stage eight times a week um, for a different audience every performance and to sort of slip my hand into Tennessee's for that two and a half hours, um, um, I don't just makes me feel better about the human race. Now, you play um, the, the character of uh, Amanda Wingfield, mm-hmm. who runs a boarding house. Uh, no, 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 she just lives in an apartment, single mum with her two kids. Uh, um, uh, you're right, sorry, run-down apartment. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, because there is an earlier Tennessee Williams play, a short play, or a shorter play... Don't, don't I, test me on this that, stuff, uh, that, that I believe that he cannibalised elements Certainly of... a short story, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also, as well as cannibalising other earlier works that he'd written, um, he cannibalised his own life for Absolutely, this play. Absolutely, yes. It's his most 
autobiographical play. I mean, you could argue that virtually everything that Tennessee ever wrote was always a kind of a... Um, talking about tropes. Um, play, you know, was, it, he was playing around with the same um, dramatis personae, you know, and, and that he was dealing with the same bug that was... Um, Irritating, tickling his soul. So, but this one is the most nakedly autobiographical. Tom Wingfield, played by Luke Mullins, is so obviously based on Tom Williams, Tom Tennessee Williams. Amanda is very much based on his mother, and Laura, um, uh, Tom's sister, Laura, is uh, so much based on Rose Williams, Tennessee's own sister. What was it about his life and his family that you think was that? got its hooks into his psyche in such a way that he kept repeating these kind of dramatic aspects, recreating them, re moving them around, almost like uh, uh, chess figures on a board. Why did he keep kind of recreating his earlier life on stage dramatically? I don't know. You'd have to read the plays, probably see them performed. I, I think, um, you know, what makes artists respond the way they do to the world... Somebody else might have grown up in that family and not had nearly the same response he did, but for whatever reason there was some sort of psychic disturbance created by his upbringing that made him feel... And also, I think, to be a gay man in the then modern world um, and the notions of um, what is normal, what is abnormal, um, to be accepted, to, um, to be driven by... Uh, passions that are not necessarily, from what he could see, shared by the rest of humanity, obviously made him feel that that was the thing he needed to pull apart, to express, to talk about, to to put up there in front of him, whether that was to examine it more closely or just exorcise it in some form, I don't know. But. In terms of putting things up there in front of uh, the audience in this instance, um, in this particular production, uh, uh, Eamon Flack, the director, has chosen to incorporate a, a large amount of video hmm. into the work so that he's not just putting the actors on stage in front of the audience but then close-ups of faces and uh, uh, to intensify moments. And I, have, I would have to say that it's not really Eamon Flack deciding to do that. He's actually Eamon Flack going back to Tennessee Williams' original... Which features notes. title cards between... Oh, yes, and Images and projections and well, there's Tennessee magic lanterns and um, a kind of a dream that, that um, Tennessee Williams had for this memory play that was never realised in its original production or even subsequent productions probably for most of the 20th century. And um, I think it was Eamon's desire along with Michael Hankin, um, the set designer, uh, to... To really go back to kind of um, explore and and, and um, honour that intention of Tennessee's, and uh, it's you know given a 21st century expression. The technology I think has moved on a little bit since you know 1943 or whatever it was when Tennessee was imagining what his what he called plastic theatre might look like. But it's so interesting that for a, uh, a play that was had been so hijacked by. Um, you know, um, modern naturalism in the theatre and in performance um, for so long to realise that Tennessee uh, had really imagined something quite a bit more theatrical, more stylized, more expressionistic. And this, Eamon and Michael have found a kind of expression of that by using um, 
that kind of technology in the performance. Having said that, it doesn't feel technological at all. In fact, I think people have said this who've seen the production, and I certainly feel it being sitting inside it, that it feels um, so thematically appropriate. Um, Tom Wingfield talks about the importance of the movies to him. It's a memory play, and the way that the... Um, he, he manipulates Tom on stage, these cameras. He is he introduces himself as the narrator who's going to shape these memories into a narrative for the audience. And, um, you know, it, the, 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 the cameras he chooses to turn on characters and moments are very much part of his... Uh, his way of constructing a dreamlike state of memory for the audience. So that notion of, of uh, that layering of imagery uh, strikes me as something that will be... Uh, I, was, I was listening to a conversation on the Breakfasters here on Triple R, I think just uh, yesterday, about lucid dreaming. Mm. Um, and it, it struck me from what I've read about this production that that's perhaps what we're getting. We're getting kind of a, a lucid evocation of memory, of dream states uh, played out on stage. Absolutely, as that's well a great way as, of describing it. Yeah, 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 as yeah. well as the drama itself that, that, yeah. that is unfolding live. Um, the, the play has, as I said, kind of uh, great acclaim in, in Sydney last year. What kind of pressure does that put on you, the the other cast members and so forth, when remounting the production here in Melbourne now? Is there a, a certain bar that's been set that you f- now you feel you have to try to exceed or...? No. Good. So it's really just a, a case of um, giving the work an additional life. Just doing it. Yeah. Just doing it. Doing it for the audience that attends on any given performance. Um, and luckily it's such a beautifully crafted piece and it's such a lovely group of people um, that we're all... I mean, it's the same cast, the same production team, most importantly the same stage management team. As anybody who comes to see it will see, it's... Um, you know, we may talk about plastic theatre and expressionism and lucid dreaming, but actually within that there's a very... Tightly tight crafted. little kernel of naturalistic detail and the kind of choreography of the objects that need to kind of weave seamlessly and buzz around that stage. Um, uh, I'm so grateful that I've got my <laughs> my ASM Katie Angen helping me kind of um, do that dance. But it's it's a joy to do, uh, as I say, a privilege and an honour. And, and that dance of knowing that you've not just got to hit the mark here for the lighting, but also being aware of the camera and so forth. You work a lot on stage, but you're also a, uh, an actor with considerable television experience as well. People, uh, I know, I have many fans of, uh, of, of Wentworth. Mm. Um, so... Does having that back that experience in television, um, what does that give you when acting on the stage with a production like this, where there are cameras everywhere? Are you more at ease, perhaps? I don't think so, because in the end, we don't. Um, um, uh, particularly, my character doesn't. Um, um, <laughs> she's she's playing for a camera that she carries permanently around, you know, focused immediately on her face um in life uh, the um i think that uh, no i don't that, that's not a sensibility we just do what we do and um let everybody else twist and twiggle the knobs um i think a couple of the um actors perhaps um, rose riley who plays laura um who is a very important figure you know rose slash laura and and tennessee slash tom wingfield um 
you know, that there are times when Rose has kind of a, a technical challenge in terms of, um, of being aware of camera placement and positions and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't affect me. Yeah. Really. What you just said about uh, a woman who carries a camera around focused on herself made me think of um, Gloria Swanson as Norman yes. Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, yes. that, that kind of dramatic, ready for the for the close-up, and and uh, a heightened awareness of, the, of her own position and place in the world. Yeah. I think... I think the Amanda Wingfield, and certainly my kind of um, take on her, or kind of exploration of her, is that somebody who's so fiercely, fiercely um, aware of a responsibility to uh, keep her little boat afloat, and that boat includes her two children, um, who, for whatever reason in the world, just will not get out of the house, and uh, you know, and, and she sees it as a reflection on her uh, maternal skills. Um, you know, that I think that that kind of... Uh, that sense of responsibility actually tips over into a kind of a, uh, a self-obsession, really. Um, I, I think she sees her children as an extension of her, and um, that that lends to some... <laughs> she takes up a lot of oxygen. <laughs> now, Pamela, I was reading an article by um, uh, a Sydney colleague, Alyssa Blake, um, a journalist who I, whose work I, an arts journalist whose work I admire enormously. She's said that you uh, have built a reputation for playing the heavy roles. Um, would you agree? Uh, and are, do you think you are drawn to heavy, dominant, dark, monstrous, difficult characters? Uh, no, no, I don't actually. I think. I mean, other people might draw me towards them um, just because of the way I look. Um, but I think, no, in fact, I, I would see it as my responsibility to, to to serve the writer's intention to the best of my ability and the roles that really attract me the most are the ones that have a whole spectrum of qualities. I mean, and one of the wonderful things that I love about um, Tennessee Williams is that, you know, although his female characters may have a reputation for being kind of monsters. Um, I don't see her as a monster at all. As I say, I see her as a fiercely pragmatic person who sometimes, whose desperation can tip her over into a kind of a um, self-delusion, to put it mildly, and a kind of madness to kind of take it to an extreme. But that's a, there's huge vulnerability in that. And power. I'm very much looking forward to seeing your performance and, indeed, the entire production. Uh, the Glass Menagerie is on... Uh previewed last night, opens tonight and running through until the 5th of June uh, at... Yeah, short season, yes. Yeah, uh, at the Merlin Theatre at the Malthouse. Uh, if you would like to uh, book tickets, then I strongly recommend jumping online malthousetheatre.com.au The Malthouse is located at 113 Sturt Street, South Bank, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, it is a short season, on until the 5th of June. Uh, it's a highly acclaimed production of Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie. Pamela Rabe, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you Thanks. very much for your time. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.